Hey there, welcome to another episode of Teams at Work. My name is Daria Gutnick, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Bunch. I'm co-hosting the show with Anthony Rio, who is also my co-founder and our COO. We are on a mission to help anyone become a great leader. And together with our team, we're building an AI leadership coach to achieve exactly that. This podcast is for a new generation of leaders. Every episode, we talk to an inspiring guest who is running a high-performance team or a company to learn about their journey and what they do in their day-to-day to be an effective leader. So no matter if you're leading a team already or simply interested in becoming more effective at work, you can build your leadership skills by investing as little as two minutes a day with our AI Leadership Coach. If you're curious, download it for free on the Apple App Store today by simply searching Bunch Leadership Coach. Your journey starts with a quick assessment of what kind of leader you are today, and then you will receive personalized daily leadership tips to help you grow faster into the leader you want to become tomorrow. This week, we met with Scott Markowitz. Scott was on the founding team at Envision. He was, I think, the first or the second employee. Envision was one of the first companies to work fully remotely before even Zoom or Slack were created. And since then, Scott has helped tons of other companies scale and succeed in a remote environment. From learning how to adapt to the ever-changing work culture in tech, to introducing the best rituals to connect and strengthen remote teams, Scott has seen it all. And he's sharing it in this really, really cool interview that really kind of sheds light on his memorable moments, his key learnings, and his takeaways. We've discussed his journey at early stage startups, why product market fit is overrated, and what your success as a leader really looks like. I hope you enjoy. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Teams at Work with Scott Markowitz today. Hey, Scott. Hey, Daria. How's it going? It's going pretty good now that we're on this call. I'm excited about this conversation. It was a long time coming. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, we've had lots of great conversations over the years, but it's nice to kind of sit down with the three of us and chat startups and remote and whatever else uh, fun and exciting we're going to chat about today. Totally. And that was the bridge to say hello to Anthony. Hey, Anthony. Hello, everyone. And hello, Scott. Can't wait to dig into your journey. But for our listeners, your journey actually took you to Berlin just recently. So we had the pleasure of sitting down with Scott for lunch and digging into a lot of this stuff, which I think was kind of the catalyst to get the podcast moving and all of that. So it's a pleasure to finally uh, be here, Scott, and I'm excited to dive in. Yeah, absolutely. Super nice. Yeah, we're going to dig into all things remote work and um, probably much more. But I think it's really prudent to just sort of hear, Scott, where your journey began, what brought you to where you are now, and um, when did you know? What was that moment where you knew or realized that remote work is a huge, uh, exciting field for yourself, that it was sort of a passion for you? No, absolutely. This is one of my favorite stories to tell. And I can hopefully have a few hours of time booked on the calendar for this episode because we'll we'll probably go all day. I got to move my next meeting, I think. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So my journey in remote and building startups started back in, I guess, 2011. 2010, I moved from Israel. I was living in Israel time back to New York. I was living in Long Island. I was commuting 70 to 80 minutes each way from Long Island down to the Wall Street area in Manhattan. Long Island Railroad to Brooklyn, switching to the subway up to the Wall Street area and then walking for a few minutes. And besides it just taking forever, I developed issues with my back. You can just imagine like just emotional tiredness and in the winter, it's cold, it's rain, your commuting sucks, right? I mean, that's the biggest compliment to remote work is getting rid of the commute. 
So I see a job post in very late, probably December 2011. I said, blah, blah, blah. At the bottom, it said work from home. And I'm like, bingo, I need to do this. And no, thankfully, that conversation turned into a job offer and turned into an opportunity of building startups and kind of getting involved in the startup and the, the remote world. So I was the official first hire at a company called Envision, which is a platform for software design and collaboration. I believe we were probably like the third or fourth all remote company at the time behind Automatic and 37 Signals, which makes Basecamp. Like there may have been maybe one or two at the time. So it was kind of brand new to me. And like the idea was cool, right? I didn't have to commute anymore. And I had the dream one day to come back uh, to Israel. And in the interview process, my boss was like, no, you might be doing some junior things. I don't know if you're going to be happy. And they kept on coming up over and over again. And I kept on saying, listen, again, one day I'm going to want to move. And the fact that this company is remote, you're going to be my ticket to go. And my life, the quality of life, just night and day better, right? From, uh, I speak about it a lot, you know, in the essence of the office space world, you know, it was what we call the work-life balance. I had a post, I think maybe it was last week talking about this you know, difference between kind of work-life balance where, right, I wake up in the morning, I'm an active person, go to the gym, go running. So I'd had to wake up 6.30, you know, to get to the gym or sorry, excuse me, 5.30 to get to the gym, get home, shower, eat breakfast, get out to like the 7.10 train. 12-hour block of getting to the office, working at the office, getting home from the office about 7, 10 at night. It was about 20 minutes before my son, now my oldest one, woke up in the morning, about 10, 20 minutes before he went to bed. And my quality of life, so then you eat dinner, you kind of do those things, and it's 8.30 at night, and like your day's over, right? So it's a rinse, repeat the same life quality over and over again. And then I got to start taking my kid and now kids to school in the morning and I get to pick them up and take them to activities and I get to go to a lunch with my spouse and I get to do all these things in my life that I enjoy to do and and then I get enjoyment out of now because I'm not tied into having to go to an office some time away. And I was actually in Tel Aviv today, just in essence, the ride back, it's a difference between whether you take the bus or train, right? And you ask people who live in my town, they'll give you train, bus. So I take the trains, it's a little bit more convenient, closer to the house. And it took me two hours to get home, which normally in good days, it's like 50 minutes. So it was like an extra hour plus because like traffic was a nightmare. I couldn't do this every day. Like I would never want to have to do that. even like twice a week, the whole like hybrid thing, which we'll probably dive into. If you tell me I need to go sit for two hours on the bus or an hour on the bus, like, no, no, no. So that was like, that was the, the beginning of the journey. I've been very much of a, a passionate evangelist and ambassador of remote work. I've have a podcast specific on the topic of remote leadership. I've started about a month and a half ago a newsletter connecting the ideas of the future of work and remote and leadership to kind of biblical sources and things like that. So very passionate about the subject and happy to to dig into to more details of it. Yeah, I would love to actually follow up on the Envision story. And I mean, this is definitely always super interesting to be part of one of those like unicorn journeys. They aren't that many, especially with the current market downturn, I think we'll see maybe a few, a little slowdown in the unicorn journeys. But I'm really curious about kind of, you know, top takeaways like lessons learned. I'm sure you've been asked this question plenty of times, but here we go again for our uh, listeners. We would still love to know what were your top learnings from the Envision Times. And also, I mean, maybe most memorable moments, like the anecdotes that kind of, you know, linger with you after that time. Yeah. So a couple Maybe start with finding moments. You know, the first was obviously getting 
at an end of the commute. I know where I remember the first day I went, the two co-founders had a Regis space in New York. And I went to the office for the first day and I walked in and the CEO looked at me and he's like, why the hell are you here? And I'm like, I don't know. It's the first day I figure kind of like meet you guys in person. Spend so time. I was like, okay, but don't come back again. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. That's a pretty cool idea. Second moment was probably raising our series A, which a lot of me, especially in that day is the due diligence looked a lot around engagement and things we did around social media and things we did with customer support and a lot of the kind of growth stuff that I was very, very involved with. So kind of hearing that a good portion of the work I was involved with directly lent to the the series A that we're on the right track. And also understanding, hey, somebody actually thinks what you're doing is pretty good and is willing to give you money and you're you hopefully you're on the right track was definitely an exciting moment. Beyond that, I guess as the company grew and it hit about like a thousand people, was was about a two billion dollar company back at probably in like 2017 or something was a memory. And then when I think one of my favorite memories was 2019, when I got a chance to go to Arizona for the second company IRL and have the opportunity to meet people in person right, that I'd been working with, I'd been collaborating with, communicating with some for probably six and a half years at that point, and never met in person, like never saw more than maybe just like a, a video screen like this. And just to be with them and have that opportunity was really exciting. I think that was probably one of the highlights. How big was the team at that point then already? We were about a thousand people, which was with about the biggest the company got. So it's a thousand people all over the world. That was kind of our plan from day one. It's, hey, we want to hire the best person wherever they are. And I think that's actually one of the biggest benefits of remote work. It's, you know, you see all the time of limited access to talent in San Francisco or wherever you are. And that's only become worse as people have embraced remote work and, and are running to get away from large cities, that there's only a finite amount of talent in each city. And I'd say before the pandemic, if you weren't curing cancer or you weren't getting people to Mars, you were never able to compete against the Facebooks and the Googles and things like that. But maybe now, them forcing you back to the office, there's a chance. So going for the best talent anywhere was an advantage for us and being able to get the best person that we could. Um, lessons, I think that's definitely one of the lessons that I learned. It's especially when a company, if you're raising money, you know, your seed in Series A, 70% of that money should go to people. And I, my belief is, and I've, I've told many people that you need to spend all your money on building an A-team because if you can't build a, a great and successful product or company with an A-team, you're certainly as hell not going to do it with the B-team or C-team or D-team. So take that money and go spend it on the best possible people you can. And obviously remote potentially gives you an advantage of being able to get the best person wherever they are. A second is heavily investing in building community. And again, especially depending on what side, if you're B2C or even B2B, like building community where people are engaged and especially if you're solving a problem, you know, Envision did that in the design space and people really loved what we were doing because it helped them. So we heavily invested in the idea of community, which back then probably wasn't really called community, called more engagement. If you were, be, I had this conversation twice today, if you're a B2C company and we've had this conversation, right? Heavily invest in swag because the return investment is fantastic when you're doing it the right way. Let's see what else. Another one is always invest in your current product. So if you're going to be right, you raise capital and you're going to your SaaS product, the only way you're going to be a unicorn is if you get into enterprise sales. And that means you also need to build a platform, right? We have these end desks and your sales force, and you have to have multiple products or pieces of a product that help and serve multiple people within an organization. So it's very important to keep building pieces out to give more value across an organization just outside maybe one core team you had. But a lesson I learned is, I mean, I think in a sad way, 
it's an envision we kind of stopped investing in the core product for a long time. And on one side, we kept on building out new features for designer, for developers and for product people and UX writers, which was absolutely the right thing to do on one hand. But on the other hand, it's we stopped investing in the core product. And you can only go so long and kind of go with like the idea of a thousand paper cuts where you can just, again, avoid your core product long enough until people just, it's just too much. And other competitors just kind of catch up to what you're doing. And even if you're the one who's innovating, I've always said that even though Figma sold for $20 billion outside of their multiplayer mode, they've never innovated anything. All of their features that they rolled out with were all features that Envision came out with first. And they just kind of added on to what those were. It's so interesting because this idea of like the first mover advantage and actually the second follower being like the much better off with the learnings that the first mover made. I think that's a really interesting. Yeah. So we probably, there was probably about like a four year period where we just didn't change anything. Our kind of version six just hung around for forever. And people kept giving the feedback of, Hey, this is really painful. Hey, this is really frustrating. Hey, this is something. And right. We kept investing in those new features and those new verticals we're trying to get into. And I think to me, I think that's what changed, no, switched the, the pendulum and giving more the kudos to, to Figma on that side. I think those are probably the biggest lessons. I mean, of anything of all the stuff I've learned afterwards, it's, you know, I guess I learned in vision, it's the idea of problem market fit, right? Most things you hear in startup world, you hear the idea of product market fit, right? I'm not a believer in product market fit. The thousand plus people I've, I've in startups I've coached, I hate the idea of product market fit, right? The world, we have enough products. We don't need any more products. We way too many, but we need solutions to problems. And when you solve this specific problem, that's when you win. And now that was the story of Envision, right? You had designers and they were trying to either in a team or with an agency express how a new design or app is going to look. And if you just imagine like PDFs, right? You're holding up multiple pieces of paper with your client or your stakeholder. And you're like, oh, if you can imagine over here, you like you, you click over here and now, now turn to page, uh, no PDF number nine, kind of no pick that up over here. And okay, now that drop down comes and that like the process was a nightmare. And just by solving that problem, that kind of won us today and really helped us create what we now know as design and UI and UX and, and lay that path. So I think those are probably the biggest lessons I learned over the days of helping build Envision. Super cool. Really prescient advice, Scott. Advice that I think I sense only one who was on a journey like Envisions could give, right? Particularly been on that journey for as long as you were. I was just listening and, and just really sort of soaking in and particularly around the core product thing, because I think, um, yeah, you, you know, you see success, but it, it's, uh, you can't forget the core, I guess is sort of my, my takeaway there and trying to do other things and forgetting that sort of thing because people do catch up, but, but really good advice. Again, advice that I think only you can give in that regard. So really excited about that. Before I ask the next question about remote work, I'd love to ask this question, which is, I remember those days where Envision plus like three others were the only all remote companies on the planet, right? Yep. Like Buffer, I think. <laughs> yeah. What's the other one? Yeah, there was like a handful, like the OGs of remote work in the like kind of modern tech space. Yep. What was it like being one of the OGs and, and how has that changed with obviously now everyone's living that life and stole it, but what's that journey been like? Before we dive into the details about it all. Yeah, sure. It, it's, I mean, it's definitely democratized access to, to people and giving better quality of life to people for everybody. Um, I think the biggest things that we learned are, you know, number one, when you have a, a job wreck, right? And you always have like the requirements and the nice to haves. Back in the, the beginning of Vision, right? You couldn't have a you know, nice to have previous remote work experience 
right? Because as you see quite often now, right? Because it didn't exist, right? There are two other companies that are doing it and nobody had it. And we found that the most successful people that joined the team were freelancers, were people who were used to the process of getting stuff done, prioritizing their time. There was nobody looking over their shoulder. Like they were able to deliver and what it, what they needed to deliver when they needed to deliver again, without that oversight. And I think it's interesting where we see the whole big picture of remote. It's we're really coming back to that idea, you know, about 12 years later, where the whole concept of async and deep work and moving away from you no know, nine through Friday, nine to five and Monday through Fridays, where it's really much more of a focus of moving away from presence, which never made sense for a long time, especially in the tech space, and moving more towards contribution or output or, or deliverables. I mean, for me, that's how I run my teams. But that, I mean, it's beautiful to see us kind of coming back to that. And I think just the ease of being a remote and running a remote company. You know, at the beginning, we were, I guess, we hired, the way we hired is anyone who wasn't in the US, we hired as a contractor. Hey, we PayPal you a bunch of money, we're wired you a bunch of money and kind of close our eyes and like, all right, whatever you got to do on your own side with compliance and laws and taxes, like, all right, you, you go take care of that and we'll just, we'll just stick on this side. And you know, thankfully, companies like Oyster and Deal and Remote have come to solve that to make it as simple as just paying a flat fee into being able to hire somebody as an employee anywhere. And that's, I think, is an important thing that probably many people don't think about is the idea of hiring somebody as an employee versus a contractor, right? Especially in Europe. I know Europe is very big into protections and laws and different benefits for full-time employees of severances and time off and all those things that are in essence lost if you hire someone as a contractor. So hiring and, and culture-wise and all the benefits and savings and so on and so forth. And number two, is that's also moving away from the idea of synchronous. You know, the beginning of Envision was a synchronous company. Right? We had three people in like the New York region. We had one guy in California, one person in Tennessee, one in Florida. I think our next hire was in British Columbia, who then moved to Scotland because his wife was going for an MBA over there. But everyone kind of worked in New York-ish time. So your California person woke up early, you're... Scotland guy, uh, no work a little bit late. And we obviously see we're kind of moving in the direction of more async and getting away from those endless meetings and things like that. So it's been an interesting journey just to see it picking up. I mean, for me, I knew like, hey, this is totally obvious. Let me just the way it changed my life. And it made so much sense. And thanks to the pandemic, it, it moved fast and got fast forwarded quite quickly, which is great. But we have a hell of a long way to go and a lot to work on because most remote companies are not really embracing the best of that remote has to offer. So I'm definitely excited to see where this goes over the next couple of years. Yeah, cool. Was Zoom around when Envision started? Like naive question, but like yeah. it wasn't, right? No, I don't think so. I mean, in the beginning, even Slack didn't exist then. I mean, we used Skype for both, you no, know, I guess, audio calls, video calls, chat. And then some point, probably around like 2014-ish, like Slack came out. And we tested internally because I was trying to get away from Skype. Slack was crap. In the beginning days, their product was just terrible. I was trying to get us to use uh, HipChat because we were, I was also trying to push the company into, into, into Jira and Confluence. So you had like the native integration. But the smart thing that Slack did is when they went back to a drawing board, they realized, hey, let's become the central source of all the work that you do. So we know that you're going to do documents in Google Docs and you're going to do a video call in Skype and you do whatever you do other places. Let's make it easier for the user to create everything and launch everything and view everything right within Slack. And the integrations was their winning moment. The fact they went in that direction, that's why they won the game because the core product before it was terrible. 
Interesting. Well, hey, we're already on the topic and, and sorry for that aside, but like it's helpful to go back in time like that. That is a whole different world. But like you've already touched on it a bit. What are your sort of takeaways now being an expert in the space on, you know, what are the biggest gaps still for companies that have been forced remote, but are still not being remote? Like what skills do we need to improve? What are the biggest levers we have to make this what is now commonplace and mainstream more productive, efficient and fulfilling and satisfying? Yeah. So I think the number one thing is companies need to realize that this is the future, right? Any of these companies today who've forced like the return to office or a hybrid type thing, they're playing the short-term game. Right now, the recession, like the economy sucks, like every company's laying off. They're fine for the next, I don't know, 12 plus months. But as soon as the economy comes back and hiring comes back, those companies are screwed. Even if the point they say, hey, okay, yeah, now you can go fully remote right? People have long-term memories. And the fact that they're going to remember, hey, this company forced me to go back into the office when remote was really successful before, I didn't want to go back. And they forced me back. Like They're all gone. They're all going to the fully remote companies. But the thing that I mean, surprised me the most outside of that is even after three years, companies haven't realized, hey, we need to really completely redesign the way the whole company operates for remote first environment, whether you're fully remote, whether you're hybrid, every company this needs to work on a remote first environment. And I see these things come up in all different capacities, right? There was an article in the Guardian about two years ago, I think there was a follow up one. And I think some European newspaper recently, like by a Gen Z person being frustrated that the older millennial is working from home and doesn't want to come back and they're losing on that learning development from being in the office, right? The, over the shoulder. In 20 something years of working, I don't know if I've ever learned anything by looking over someone's shoulder. So, I mean, that's not, not for today's conversation, but it was, I mean, so consistently the idea is like, oh, there's no mentorship in remote environments. You can't learn like those poor junior people who are losing out by, you know, the older people not being in the office where instead, again, the company needs to think, okay, if remote's the future, how do we now do that? How do we do mentoring in a remote environment? Okay. That means lunch and learns. That means pair coding. That means actual creating one-on-one -on -one mentoring sessions between the senior person and the junior person to do that mentoring and to do that way. Again, it's shifting the way you operate. The same thing with onboarding, the same thing with engagement, the water cooler moments, right? Everyone, that was the number one thing I heard throughout the pandemic. Oh, you missed these water cooler conversations. Yes, they need to be intentionally created. If you're just expecting people just to kind of come together and have a conversation on Slack, People aren't me, right? In Envision, that's what I did. I would go through every day online, close my eyes, who's online? Uh, Anthony, hey, hey, Anthony, I'm Scott. I'm in Israel. You want to jump on a five-minute Zoom call? And people love that opportunity to see a face, hear a voice, get out of Slack. But very few people are like me that regularly do that. So again, the company really needs to understand we need to totally redesign how we operate to be remote first. And along with that is the idea of the central word of remote is intentionality. Every single thing that you do, hiring, onboarding, engagement, leadership, feedback, everything has to have intentionality. And if you don't have the intentionality, it's simply not going to happen itself. And I'm going to give an example. I had a former manager who on one side was a fantastic manager, right? This is a leadership tool, leadership podcast, did great, was always supportive, right? Whatever you need, supporting, helpful, anyone that gets in front of you, just put them out of the way, tell them, just throw my name on there and say, I got your support. It was fantastic in that sense. But because this person came from an office environment where he had always worked in an office, even partially you know, through the pandemic, he always understood what's going on with the people on his team just by seeing in the office, right? Having a coffee, having lunch, 
being in that environment. I had a one-on-one with him every other week. And one of those two every month was always canceled. So I spoke with my manager once a month. So how would my manager know the impact that I'm making to the team and to the company? And how would I, as the employee, know that my manager understands the impact that I'm making for the company and for the team? Right? It's impossible. When you don't understand, hey, I need to check in on Slack. I need to check in, create these intentional opportunities to connect with my team to see how you're doing. Right? I was just writing a blog post about, actually about this specific topic today. Like Having the intention to say, how are you? Daria, how's it going? How are you feeling? What's new? That intentionality is just so required. And that's something, again, something people still haven't learned. So why company leaders and companies haven't invested in upskilling managers, how to lead remotely, baffles me. I mean, that's why my podcast was created some two and a half years ago for that specific reason of, hey, if I can share what I've been doing and what works and what didn't work and bring on other people who are doing something similar, if I can improve the experience of just one remote leader and a remote team, like, hey, I've, I've done my job and I have can kind of call to win. So I think those are the biggest, I think for me, the two biggest things that companies really need to understand, hey, you need to change exactly how you're operating. Nothing is grassroots. Nothing's going to figure out on its own. You have to be very, very intentional. And really just most cases, just suck it up and understand, hey, this is the future, right? Pandora's box is opened. People want flexibility. I don't want a two-hour commute ever under any circumstance. I don't care what you offer me in the office. No massages and Michelin star chefs. And I don't care. Like an hour commute is an hour commute is an hour commute. End of story. So people need to accept, hey, we need to embrace the flexibility and give our employees the flexibility to choose how they work and when they work and all those things like that. And then redesign their operations to support that. Actually, just digging into that, I have kind of a thought since a few weeks. And that topic died out a little bit with like this whole market correction and how our economical downturn is evolving and what type of times are coming towards us and things like this. But I think the question of like hybrid work versus remote work versus in the office work, it's still also there despite of all the layoffs and everything else that we're going through, especially in tech. I would really love to hear your take on kind of hybrid yes or no. And like, how do you actually see the future of work evolving in particular with this question of where do we work and how much synchronous work is actually really required in order for us to succeed in our missions from your perspective. So before I go into that, I'll, I'll push the question back to two of you. Right? As the co-founders of Bunch, you started the company many months ago. If you were to launch the product in the company today, right, middle of February 2013, would you launch the company as a hybrid company? It's a great question. You want to go first, Anthony? I think I know what you're trying to get at. I mean, would I launch it as a hybrid company at inception? Probably not, right? Like, I think we're still small enough where we can sort of understand how that feels. At inception, and I, you know, we obviously we're connected to some founders in that position. At inception, it, you do start kind of fully remote in that sense. Now, at what point would I think about having some sort of what people call hybrid option? I haven't really entertained that since we're sort of so focused on where we're at. But like, I think in a way, I'd probably answer like in principle, no, but it's more complicated than that. It's more nuanced, obviously. But um, in principle, no, I mean, we're technically fully remote, I'd say right now. Like we're very, very, very remote. We do have an office, but I, I'd say we're more remote than we are hybrid for sure right now. Like for sure, but that can change. And I think, again, I think if you're 
a little bit of a longer answer here, but I think if you are to consider hybrid, I would say it probably, or some version of hybrid or whatever on the spectrum that is, like you probably have to be just as intentional with that too, because you can't, you can't just wing that, right? You have to sort of, what does that mean? And if that's your model, what does that mean? And where in all of this? So. I think that hybrid isn't necessarily a good mode for smaller companies, I feel. And I think it's a consequence of larger organizations trying to respond to a diversity of needs. So that's why I would answer to your question that I don't think I would start any business hybrid because it's in the end, almost like a scaling thing in a way. Like, I think you need to decide whether you like working synchronous and like in a room together with uh, people that are physically approximate to you, or whether you want to do the thing where you actually work with others across the geographical distances, et cetera. And you want to enable that kind of freedom of an autonomy around that. And I think that you'll end up in a hybrid space eventually. Like I was really curious and excited to see like admission go as far as having 1000 people remote. I do have a feeling that there is a ceiling to being fully remote still. Not that I'm like a proponent of it, just like from an observational empirical standpoint, I think it's extremely hard for an organization to stay remote beyond a few thousand employees. And I think that it probably ends up in a hybrid setting eventually, just simply because there's going to be people in the current moment. So 2023, right? Like maybe that's different in 2030 or so, or 2028 or something. But as of now, I think there's still a lot of people that actually kind of enjoy in-person interaction. They want to have that separation between home and work. And you also can't deny that to a degree. Like I also, being a founder and an early stage startup, like I can also very much relate to the idea of like, you have a small home, typically, if you are in a partnership or you have kids or family or animals or whatever, like it's also not the easiest to work from home always. And I think it's many people, I think, still enjoy that ability to be able to go to an office, work from somewhere else and then come back. And of course we have co-working spaces, which is partly how we solve it. So if you, I agree with Anthony, like we are fully remote, but in reality, I think at least 30% of us work at a different place than home on a given day, funny enough, <laughs> despite of it being small teams. So like being fully remote doesn't mean that you actually are in your home working from home, I think, which sometimes a lot of people also think, but maybe it's a complicated answer to the question, but I don't think you can plan for hybrid. <laughs> That's uh, kind of the point that I wanted to make, and I appreciate both answers. It's the companies who decided to go hybrid did it as a compromise, right? Executives, and we see that across how many articles, executives, C-suite want to be back in the office, even though they tended to be more remote than the team was, and the team wanted to be remote. So they said, hey, right, somehow we can't figure out remote culture. Again, feel free to call me. So we're going to stick people back in an office two or three times a week because we know how to do company culture, right? Almost nobody knows how to do that either. And the other couple of days, okay, no, they'll do whatever they do. So it was never saying, hey, we're going to do hybrid for the right reason. You know, it was always very much of a compromise. So, and that's why companies today, no one's launching as a hybrid company. If you want to be in an office, you want to get together, hey, that's great. And I totally support you. Or it's the other side, hey, we want to be fully remote and go that way. I definitely agree with you when you get to a certain size that often some space comes into play where I see hybrid going is I think number one, it's no longer a central headquarters, right? You got to get rid of the central headquarters. Again, as I said before, a 60 minute commute is a 60 minute commute. doesn't matter what you're offering there, what kind of perks and incentives. I'm not commuting 60 minutes for 
for any reason. Maybe once a month, I'll go in there to kind of hang out with people, again, for the right reason. And I think that's going to be replaced with micro spaces that are much more hyper local to you that you can kind of go to a closer space. We see that very prevalently in the UK, where Standard Chartered during the pandemic signed a, an agreement with Regis to replace their central headquarters and whatever was downtown central London and replace it with Regis offices much closer to their employees so they could all go to their smaller individual spaces. So number one, headquarters, 60 minutes away, gets replaced by hyper local spaces. Number two becomes a perk, similar to like, you know, lunches or Kindle books or whatever, no companies tend to offer this way. Here's a space or a number of spaces or a pass to a tool that allows you to book space. Use it how you want it, when you want it, why you want to use it. You don't want to use it. That's great. You want to use it every day. That's great. It becomes much more of something like, yes, if you want to use it, go right ahead in whatever capacity it wants. So companies where all hybrid companies are going to move eventually is moving in that direction where they understand, hey, the space is here for people who get who want to get together, spend time together, which is extremely crucial having the in real life experience, right? Why we met uh, together in Berlin to have that FaceTime after being no friends here on Zoom for so long. But again, it's not, hey, you need to come to the office X amount of times, or this is the office that you're coming down to. It's again, use it as like a Kindle, you know, Kindle subscription or something like that. And I think that's definitely where we're going with hybrid. Super cool. I have more follow-up questions, but it seems like you wanted to follow up on this as well, Anthony. Go ahead. If uh, I'm going to switch topics here a little bit. So if you have a... Uh... Go for it. Go for it. I'm in a rabbit hole otherwise. So we're going to keep going for three hours on this now. And that's what where these things are like here to geek out. So I'm telling you, I could talk all day. So clear all your calendars. We're going to have a good night tonight. No, Scott, I've already gleaned a ton from the conversation. And I um, I think, I guess I've personally watched myself sort of... It's been a couple of years now, right? And we were slightly like, I'd say hybrid, maybe. I'd definitely say hybrid before the pandemic. But like we've been fully remote for a while. I'm taking it for granted. Like I, I actually think we're also given the stage we're at and all that, still trying to to grow. And like it's large, it actually isn't something I've thought about in detail for a couple months now, I guess, just sort of throwing that out there, right? Where I'm taking a lot of it for granted. So the conversation is really refreshing for me personally. But to sort of like uh, selfishly pull it over, actually, no, we share this topic, remote leadership. Like we're in the same, that's why we're here together. Like this is, Absolutely. This is a win-win. I'd love to start talking about Back to sort of some of the anecdotes you were talking about or referring to management, remote management, remote leadership, really like crisply zooming into maybe even that manager who was managing in the office, even though that's not so realistic these days, but like someone who's been newly appointed, like engineering manager, but now in a completely remote setting, you know, both in remote or hybrid. I mean, we can, you can sort of provide some thoughts on both, but what makes a great leader, you've already touched on sort of checking in the attentionality, what makes a great leader or manager in that context? And what are the behaviors? What are the key behaviors beyond what you've already talked about that are really necessary to succeed in that, that new role? So you're speaking to that person who, you know, this is fresh knowledge for them, right? They're seeing it in bunch from Scott. What is that? What's the tips? Yeah. So one thing is obviously the idea of empathy. So again, this is for remote, hybrid, fully office. It doesn't really matter. As a leader, you need to be empathetic and understand, or at least try to understand where your team is coming from and why things happen and people have lives. And especially these days where lives and work are kind of becoming more intertwined, that there may be lots of reasons why a certain thing happens a certain way or something gets delayed. So there needs to be that understanding of empathy. I think that's, that's number one. Number two is a leader. 
it's your success is based on your team's success, right? There's a very, you've seen a million and one infographics on LinkedIn about the difference between managers and leaders. Right? We won't go into that, but the idea is as a leader, your success based on your team's success. And all people that I personally coach who are first-time managers, the, one of the first things I do is I buy the Simon Sinek's book, Leaders Eat Last, right? It's on my bookshelf over here. I don't think there's any better book for first-time leaders, anytime leaders, doesn't matter what it is. As a leader, you eat last, right? Your team comes first. Always, you know, you have to be there to support them, to kind of cover them. I think that's, again, crucially important. And then really when it comes down to, you know, the remote and hybrid environments, again, it's understanding that intentionality. I don't want to you know, beat the dead horse, but the most important thing in a remote environment is intentionality. And you have to create those intentional opportunities and building team connection. And again, doing those one-on-ones and very much focusing on the opportunities because they're not going to happen themselves. I think and outside of that, for me, it's getting coming down to the idea of moving away from presence, right? For the last 70 years, productivity was based on presence. You know, how many hours in the day in the office you were there, even though there's tons of research that says at best in the best countries, only four and a half hours of work were actually getting done. And some like in the worst countries, no one and a half hours of getting done. So if you're in the office like early in the morning or late in the afternoon, like most likely people on your team were just doing this, this is what they're doing on YouTube or Facebook or, or what have you. So changing the mindset of, being based on contribution and being based on deliverables. And that's certainly how I run my teams. I need this specific thing by this specific time and very clear of exactly what I need and exactly very clear on when I need to buy. And what you do between now and then, hey, that's up to you. Like you decide in that async type mentality, if for you it's best to work for a nine to five, that's great. Like if that's what you need, go do it. If it's working some hours in the morning and then some like the afternoon, Whatever it is, again, whatever's best for you, so long as you understand, hey, I need to get X done by Y time. And I've had people, it was always those enjoyable moments and people on my team in the last year that would come to me saying, hey, is it okay if I leave a little bit? I have a doctor's appointment at four o'clock. Now I'm going to come in early and then I'll check back in later to make up the time. And I was kind of shake my head. And I'm like, no, don't come in early and don't come back late because I don't care about the number of hours that you're here. If you feel, hey, I need that extra time to get this task done by whenever needed, that's up to you to decide. But if it's not, don't feel like you need to make up time because making up time is you know, totally pointless, again, so long as you can get done. I think for me, those are the most core things, especially as we move more towards, excuse me, remote and hybrid. It's, again, understanding what's truly important, understanding on what time really means and how to be able to be clear and get things done. and. Again, going back to intentionality, I'm going to probably beat that that dead horse the entire episode. So I apologize to probably come back at that a million times. That's okay. <laughs> Scott, are there any like rituals or things that you've put in place in your teams that have really worked like unique things to you and your leadership style that you've just learned that work? Whether it's to me, there's probably other people are doing it, but some of the things that that I've done that have worked you know, very, very well. You know, number one, I don't go more than two max three days without checking in with my team. And that could be as simple as like a Slack message of, hey, how's everything going? Or hey, how are you? And that, again, it's, you know, this post that I'm writing about now is specifically on that. But when you do all these common pieces that we'll talk about, that simple three word question, how are you, makes a big impact to people's mental health and people's appreciation, understanding that they're appreciated and things like that. 
to the point where one of the best compliments I ever got was, as a manager was a short while before I left my last role, where someone on my team had said in a one-on-one, oh, thank you so much for always checking in on me. And like for me, I felt really good about that that effort, which again, three words in a Slack box and or other things made that much of an impact with somebody that they knew they were cared about. They knew I had the best intentions and all the kind of things wrapped around that. So I think that's number one is always checking in. Number two, going async, no, by default. Async by default doesn't mean you only do async. It means when you need a synchronous meeting and you have to have one, you do one. But by default, so I moved my one-on-ones and the team meetings, at least the work portion, to async, right? The worst thing in the world is sitting on a 30 to 60-minute call for me to read through a Google slide word by word by word while you sit there and you think, oh, God, why couldn't you just send me this freaking presentation? And I would have read it. And I would ask questions and I would have given feedback. It's a nightmare. So I do all those. I record, I go, I read through that presentation on a recording or like a loom video or something like that. I share it with my team on a Monday or individual on a Monday. Hey, you have two days until Wednesday to ask questions, give feedback, have a conversation asynchronously. Then we kept the Wednesday synchronous time. And as a team, we played games every other week or we did show and tells or lunch and learns or some team building thing where the only focus was building relationships with the team. That was it. Having, having a good time for the one-on-ones was similar. Like, Hey, how's it going? How are you doing? Did the kid make the football team? How was the Super Bowl? Again, relationship building and more focus on personal development. Like what have you been learning? What are you focused on? How can it be helpful to you to achieve those goals that you're looking to do? Because again, as a leader, not a manager, I want you to be successful in your professional trajectory. So I need to help you in trying to, to get to that track. So those things have worked really well, especially in a remote environment when you're doing async, you also need more opportunities to get to team together. So we did co-working half an hour. So two times a week, we'd open up a Zoom or a butter call or what have you for like 30, 45 minutes, join, don't join, drop in, drop out, talk about work, talk about whatever. Again, the opportunity just for people to get together and build relationships. And I can say when I took over my last two teams on my support team, I took over a very junior team where most of them were only there for about two months. And by implementing like a lot of these practices, four day work week and things like that, increased customer satisfaction from 82% to 93% in six months. Have the, the, have the first time reply rate and number of replies in there. On the customer success side, our team came about years after kind of total neglect post-sale that the company had had. So trying to build relationships with customers who had been not engaged for years and had been able to get hundreds of replies to emails, tens of meetings, seven upsell opportunities, because I simply used one methodology, one idea, make my team happy. If I do everything to make my team happy and give them all the opportunities to be successful, like, hey, they're going to go do it themselves. And they did it. And my team, like where the rest of the organization, like their numbers were, <laughs> were in the dumps, which many teams, especially unfortunately the last year were, like my team's numbers were going through the roof, right? Because I just focus on how do I keep my team happy? And I had a, an argument again, also shortly before I left, where my manager had said to me, he's like, no, please don't advertise the take a week off. So I'm also a believer in the idea of like unlimited vacation that every startup offers. I do require time off. So every quarter, everyone on my team had to take one continuous week off every quarter. They could take off more time if they wanted to, but they had to take a continuous week off to have the opportunity to disconnect, right? Prevent burnout. And I had so much great feedback from that. And I could argue, like, don't promote that, right? They already have 52 extra days off by not working on Fridays. Like, don't give them any more time off. 
And I just went back. I'm like, just look at the results. Like the results speak for themselves. All the numbers are going through the roof. Like bests at, at the company history, best in many of the like companies that are around. Just making them happy obviously works. So I think those are my thoughts of you know trying to do little things that I've done that can have had been quite successful uh, over the years. I think it's uh, I have I have a, a question about this, but I'm going to keep it very short. I'm challenging um, that assumption. I of course obviously agree being an art psychologist, like I think my um, agenda oftentimes in the very, very beginning of my career was to convince business leaders to pay more attention to satisfaction levels of their teams and kind of take that as a, as a KPI. Um, I think over the time as a business owner, I learned that in order for that strategy to work, um, you also require the other things to be there. Like you kind of have to have an intrinsic drive within the team to want to succeed. You also need to have alignment around what it means to succeed. They have to have a shared understanding around what they actually doing, like what are they trying to deliver with their work, which I know in customer support actually can be, it doesn't have to be, but can be more straightforward than in other teams like product development or growth, where you kind of have to really figure out what is even the thing you're supposed to do. It's not so clear often. Um, but maybe a, a question back to you, like, would you agree that it kind of, it, you need more than just happiness in a team, but oftentimes happiness is just like so overlooked and undermanaged and like not taken as seriously as the other things. And so we kind of end up with um, a lot of, yeah, fuzzy, funny stuff, like uh, too much pressure, too ignorance, lack of attention, other things, just because people don't take happiness as seriously as like clarity of uh, goals and clarity of mission and things like that. Um I'd still put happiness as the central theme. I think other parts are important. Again, you know, harping back to, to Simon Sinek, right? His other best book, Start With Why, right? Everyone has to know how their specific role impacts into the bigger picture. So even if someone thinking, hey, I'm, I'm answering customer support tickets, like how does that really help the bigger picture? But by doing a good job and having good replies and doing it quickly, that gets a solution to the user, which means they can get back to doing their job faster using your product, which makes them happier, which means customer satisfaction is higher, which then leads to higher NPS. Uh, and then longer term use and sales. Again, you can kind of pull all that. And it's obviously important to give a sense of how each piece is linked up to the bigger picture and how every project that you want somebody to do of, hey, again, this was a, a very... Um, regular conversation within especially my customer success teams, you know, when launching it's, hey, we're doing this, right? And it's going to be a lot of work. But here's why it's important. Here's the impact it's trying to make. And here's the kind of connection to the big picture. If it's just saying, like one of the things of creating async quarterly business reviews for their 50 whatever customers in their in their book, that's a hell of a lot of work, right? I, I probably personally didn't realize how much work it actually took to do each one of those. But when you're kind of explaining what the data is and why it's important and what how valuable it is and how it links up to connection and, and insights and proactive and engagement, all those things, then people understand, yes, this isn't just busy work. This isn't just some three-slide presentation and a two, three-minute video that I'm going to create and probably nobody's going to watch. And it was like a totally waste of, God knows, like weeks of work. Here's the impact, right, that it can make to renewals and preventing churn and NPS and all those bits and pieces. So I totally agree with you. Everyone needs to be on the same page and explaining the connection to the company mission and, and why you're there. Um, I also think, I mean, especially many companies, company leaders need to understand in many cases, people are there because they need a job. 
right? This is feedback that I've given many founders, especially for job posts. Like I, I freaking hate that question in a job post or an interview. So why do you when you working at company X? In reality, because a person needs a job. No, that's, so for me, it'd be much more why, why does this specific job interest you? Or what about the job interest you versus why do you want to come? Like if you're building accounting software or compliance, something like, does anybody really care about that? Like, that's not a sexy product. Like you're not saving, you're not curing cancer. Like, oh, you're helping somebody be compliant in a, I don't know, a, a SOC 2 report. Like, nobody cares. It's just a job. And I think really founders especially need to understand that from that perspective, many people there just, just to do the job, just to kind of get the paycheck. They'll never be as driven about the company as you are. And I think there's lots of reasons around that. And the compensation is a very big picture, very big piece of that. And I think when you understand that, hey, as a leader, as a, especially as a founder, I should never expect my people to work all kinds of crazy hours and do this and do that and like forget their lives. And because maybe I am, right? And again, maybe I'm single, I'm in my 20s, I, I can work 18 hours a day and I don't have any other responsibilities, but like people with families or other things that, that just isn't the way and there shouldn't be that expectation on, on them. Uh, and I think that's a major issue that I see consistently when speaking with, with many founders over the years. Great advice, Scott. The reflective moment is here. We're at the we're at the uh, we're at the final question. This is a question we we um, we ask everyone, every guest, and um, it, it's a powerful question. If you could go back to the very beginning of your journey, so with remote work or just sort of management leadership, the topics that we're talking about here, and give yourself one or two of like the most important tips, um, what would you what would you tell yourself? That's a very good question. Um, if I went back to the younger year, I'd probably say invest more in networking. You know, I try to do quite a bit anyway, but all right, we've, I've learned over the years, it's all about who, you know, I mean, doors get opened in some capacity by the people that, you know, so invest a heavy amount of time in your network and building that work. And I think, especially as a leader, I don't want to say this is, I mean, probably something I learned along the way. It's always invest in learning, right? You as a leader always need to be learning. You're never fully learned. You've never hit, there's no glass ceiling or any kind of ceiling in leadership. It always keeps going up um, and just keep learning and, and keep trying to know work on the craft. And once you think you've gotten to a great leader and you've gotten great feedback on a 360 review and how wonderful you did and supporting people and things like, well, there's plenty of stuff you got to work on and you need to improve on it and kind of never forget that. Uh, I think those are probably like the two biggest tips I'd say to definitely spend a lot of time and effort uh, into. I'm sure the, the the first time managers out there will really first time professionals, leaders, whatever, will really appreciate those. Those are two great solid tips. I forgot. Well, I'll add one more. Sorry, I'll add one more. Um, mentors, more than one, uh, and they'll probably change over the amount of time. Like, get somebody who can help you, who's been in that situation before, who can give you guidance, who can be a sounding board, who can be a therapist, who can be whatever whatever they are. Uh, and in many cases, that means like, hey, you should pay them or you should reward them financially. You know, I come across that all the time where, you know, a founder that I'm working with or somebody that I know gets some great advice to like totally change the trajectory or save them thousands of dollars and like countless amounts of wasted time. I said, oh, what did you do to thank them? Well, I said, thank you. I'm like, okay, you know, go in their calendar or find their calendar and book, take them out to like the nicest steak dinner that you could possibly get, spend 150, 200 bucks on a nice dinner and like thank them, like that means something. Like they saved you ten, probably tens of thousands of dollars. 
you can afford, you know, a $500 dinner or $500 lunch. Um, so be thankful, find mentors again, stages, you know, you may need one at one stage. And once you've gotten there, you need another one, but get, get access to people who can kind of give you guidance and be that, that sounding board for you. So good. I was about to follow up with the exact, like, how do you, how do you kind of make that happen? I think because I, I definitely also have given that advice just recently, like two days ago, I had to fill out some survey, like what would you do differently if you go back in time, whatever, start networking earlier, build a stronger professional network. And um, I'm so glad you you referenced the points of like gratitude. I try to understand what provides value to people, pay that value. Um, and I, I don't like, I think this is easier said than done to a degree. Like I think we're all learning about this constantly. Also how like society views these type of engagement changes constantly, right? Like um, I think lunches and dinners have been around all the time, but now we also have platforms. We actually can like tip people digitally. You can book like 30 minute slots and then kind of like decide what you, what you're going to like provide back in value. Um, there's just so many ways. And I think maybe if, um, I would follow up on it is like, um, ask what kind of is the best way to reimburse, I guess, or like, what is the best way to say, uh, to show gratitude and not be afraid to, yeah, to, to clarify that, to kind of understand what the needs are of the person that helps you. It's, um, definitely really, really great advice. And I think we're all learning about this still constantly. Nobody has figured it fully out, but, um, thank you so much, Scott, for spending so much time with us and sharing insight and experience. Um, very, very, very helpful advice, uh, which we will be, um, leveraging and, and packaging for our audience further. I hope uh, you all enjoyed the episode and learning from Scott, um, will include, um, Scott's, uh, links in the show notes, but if our um, audience wants to get in touch with you, how do they find you actually? Um, probably easiest ways is LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn. So it's M-A-R-K-O-V-S and Victor I-T-S. Most people spell with a Z. Um, they spelled it wrong on my college diploma. So it actually wasn't a surprise when I went up there. I knew it was going to be spelled wrong. Just did the same mistake in the invite. I just saw. <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't want to throw you guys under the bus and mention that here on the episode. But if you did, then that, then that's okay. Um, that's a great way. You can go to my website, scottmarkovitz.com. Can reach out to me there. Um, if it, interested, if you're a remote leader and want to know how to do that, uh, my website and the blog and posts and podcast are leading from afar. Um, so leadingfromafar.com and all that stuff is found probably on LinkedIn. But I want to thank you guys, right? So I've been, again, an active user of Bunch for probably at least 18 months, maybe 24 months or something like that. Um, one of the early beta no users. And again, this is something that we've spoken about. As a leader, you always constantly need to be upskilling. But there's so much stuff out there and it's hard to, A, it's hard to find. Hey, there's too much out there. And giving the opportunity for people to upskill in like bite-sized chunks every day, doing it the right pace is is game changing you no know, for especially for a lot of young leaders who who don't know where to look and don't know what's right what's good advice and what's not bad advice and different things like that so i'm certainly appreciative of of what you guys are building and trying to help give access to to leaders to have information to continue growing where they are and, and to build a community and have access to all those other resources that you're doing so thank you guys so much thank you scott Thank you. And we could, we could never build any of this if there weren't people like you, Scott, who would take the time to actually write and synthesize and, uh, collect all the nuggets. Uh, we're just here to distribute and give access. Um, it's been a pleasure and super, super excited, uh, to, to see where our journeys lead. Everyone who's interested to get in touch with Scott also join our community at Teams at Work. Um, um, you can find the link on bunch.ai slash community and, uh, yeah, chat with. Uh, Scott there as well. Amazing.
Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Teams at Work. Let us know what your thoughts are on today's episode. You can find us on Twitter at Daria Gutnick and at Anthony A. Rio. Or simply follow Bunch at Bunch underscore HQ. And don't forget, subscribe if you like the episode, because we always have interesting guests who join us and share valuable knowledge as well as actionable advice. Yeah, we're looking forward to hearing from you. Please do get in touch. At the beginning of the show, we did mention that we're building an AI leadership coach that helps you level up as a leader in just two minutes a day. Check us out on the Apple App Store and simply search Bunch Leadership Coach to find it. Try it out and let us know what you think. And that's a wrap. We are your hosts, Daria Gutnick and Anthony Rio, and we're excited to speak with you all soon. Till next time. Till next time. Till next time. Till next time. Till next time.